Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and podcast that's been running for three years now and we've recorded loads and loads of tragic variety because what we do is we get people to come along to the show and stand up and do tragedy and we get people from a variety of different parts of the arts we've got comedians storytellers musicians spoken word artists and more and they come together to look at the sadder things in life with some laughs as well as some tears and we're taking a break from our live shows until february 2015 so to fill in the gap on the podcast we're putting together some special episodes that really celebrate what we think stand-up tragedy is about and showcase some of the amazing performances that we've got over the last few years. Today's episode is Selected Tragedy Volume 9, Tragedy Comedy. And it's going to focus on some of the comedians that we've had on our stage over the last few years. But one of the things that I want stand-up tragedy to be and one of the things that it's managed to be is a place where comedians can stand up and talk about serious things and not always go for the laughs and not always go for the material that is safe and comfortable to a a general comedy audience. Stand-up tragedy is a different kind of space where we talk about the darker, the more depressing, the sadder, things in life and sometimes there are laughs and sometimes there are tears and sometimes there are both of those things right next to each other because that's kind of what life is like I reckon or how I experience life anyway and that's kind of what I want Stand Up Tragedy to be about. So today we've got a series of different comedians at different points in their careers talking about those sadder things in life and because those kind of subjects are coming up if you're listening to this show prepare yourself for those subjects so to give you a content note on what's coming up there is lots of talk about suicide there is lots of talk about death and bereavement there is lots of talk about loneliness and sadness there is talk about violence and and childhood violence and big global political problems and violence and stuff like that and racism and there's talk about eating disorders none of these things are being made fun of I don't think I think if you listen to this episode you're not going to feel that we're making light of those things but we're talking about those things and there's also you know guinea pig impressions ridiculous stories about cats love life comedy and all sorts of things so there's a mix of stuff today so sit back relax and prepare yourself for the tragedy first up we have andy bodel you can find him at underscore womanology underscore on twitter and he told this story or did this kind of comedy infused story with us back at the Hackney Attic in 2013. And I was just uh, too loud, too quiet. Okay, good. 
Right, now, um, you might not guess it, but uh, I was a very happy child. I, um, I had uh, loads of friends, I had a really good relationship with my parents, uh, good grades in school, and I was passionate about loads of things, like I loved Doctor Who and Star Wars and um, writing short stories and uh, playing with my cousins, all kinds of stuff. Then came puberty. Now, um, in the, over the course of about two weeks, I underwent a complete metamorphosis, basically, um, going from being a sort of carefree, fine-featured butterfly into a greasy, sex-crazed maggot. Um, basically, um, girls and their accursed, shapely bottoms um, just dominated every waking moment of my life and most of the sleeping ones. So, uh, as a result, um, by the age of 16, I, uh, I wasn't really talking to my mum and dad, um, wasn't doing so well at school, um, and uh, I didn't really have any true friends, and um, didn't really have any interests to speak of either. So, um, yeah, a bit, bit of a turnaround there. Um, but I did, on the plus side, I did have one good friend um, in my year at school, uh, smart, funny, reliable. Uh, one of the few people at school you can actually have a conversation with about something that wasn't last night's telly, you know. Um, and we used to meet up a lot, and in particular, uh, every break time, without fail, we would um, get together in the cubby hole uh, near the sports hall. Sorry, this sounds really bad. It's just, it's just that's where we met um, to hang out. Um, anyway, there was only one problem with this arrangement with my friend. It's that um, I really wanted her to touch my penis. Um, now, Alison, bless her, didn't have the slightest clue about this. I'd never told her. I didn't dare tell her because I didn't want to ruin the friendship. And also, I, um, well, because she was so kind of sexy and cute and funny, she always, she, she always had a boyfriend, so um, there was no opportunity. Anyway, uh, uh, towards the end of the fifth form, which I believe the young people now call uh, year 11, um, I, she, she broke up with her lumbering oaf, and um, so she was free. And uh, the week, about a week after, I was walking her home from school, and, um, and we had a little kiss. So, like, I was made up. It was like, finally, uh, true happiness was within my grasp. And then the next day at school, um, in geography, she blanked me, uh, just completely avoided me. And uh, I went to the cubby hole by the sports hall at break time, and she wasn't there. Um, hunted high and low for her all, all over school, and eventually tracked her down after school. And she said, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm, I've been avoiding you, but last night, that was a mistake. So um, the next day was a Saturday, and uh, every Saturday my parents used to go to the pub. So they went out, leaving me alone in front of the TV. And I think I was watching Saturday Live, if anyone remembers that late-night Channel 4 terrible comedy program. Um, anyway, I sat there, and I was contemplating life without my Alison, and um, I came to a decision. So I got up, and I started searching around the house. But I couldn't, for the life of me, find any rope. I guess... <laughs> I guess Dad wasn't, you know, a handy kind of guy. Um, anyway, so there weren't any rope. Um, but then I thought, well, maybe, maybe a tie will do it. He's often see, you know, tie. But this was the 80s. So all my ties were skinny ties. Um, and therefore probably not, you know, able to hold my weight. So, um, but then I had a brainwave. Um, in the laundry room, we had um, some curtains that were held up with net curtain wire. Do you know those sort of cables? I thought, that'll probably do the trick. So I took the curtains down, um, went into the garage, um, put it over the beam, put a chair under the beam, and then stood on the chair um, and tried to make a noose out of curtain net wire. I don't know if anyone's tried to do that, but um, it's not very flexible. It took me about 15 minutes. <laughs> so anyway, eventually I fashioned something that I thought would do the trick, put it around my neck, 
and um, there was no saving phone call, unfortunately. Uh, so said my goodbyes and kicked away the chair. Now, um, if there's anyone here who's remotely familiar with material science, um, you're probably aware exactly how curtain net wire behaves under stress. Um, so instead of putting me out of my misery, um, it tightened around my throat, but then it stretched and lowered me gently to the floor. So, um, so yeah, I, I was too embarrassed to try again that night, so I just went back to watching Saturday Live. Um, and, yeah, um, I, I never told anyone about that attempt, and my, my mum never noticed that the laundry room curtains had developed a bit of a sag. So um, life went on for a bit. Um, and over the next months, uh, Alison and I became much closer, and I used to start going round to her house after school every day. And one day I turned up, and she wasn't there. But her mum said, come in anyway, have a cup of tea. So as I sat down, um, she lit me a Rothmans and said, um, she does love you, you know. She just hasn't realised it yet. Bless her. So um, emboldened with this new information, <laughs> the following week I got Alison to a private place and I asked her out. And she um, looked at me for a few seconds and then said, uh, don't be silly. And she laughed. Um, so anyway, the next day was, was another Saturday. And this was in the kind of the middle of the sixth form, uh, middle of the lower sixth. And I said to mum and dad at lunchtime, right, I'm just off into town um, to do my regular shifts at the shoe shop. But when I got into town, instead of turning left to go to true form, I turned right uh, to go to the Wiltshire Hotel, which is the tallest building in Swindon. Um, anyway, so I get to the Wiltshire Hotel, and uh, the lobby's completely deserted. There's no one around, so uh, I'm free to go. So I, I went up the stairs. I don't know why I took the stairs. Why I thought I needed exercise on my last day on this earth. Um, anyway, I took the stairs all the way up to the eighth floor. And then I, a lot of the windows are generally shut for, for good reason, because I think this kind of thing might happen a lot, you know. Uh, but eventually I found one that was open, and I climbed out and sat on the ledge. And I wanted a couple of minutes contemplation before I took the plunge. So I, um, I lit up a cigarette, a Marlboro Light, I don't really like Rothmans, and, um, and pressed play on my Walkman. Because um, I had a, had a Walkman, obviously, as you did then. Um, and in my Walkman, at the time, was my favourite album, uh, which was um, No Jacket Required by Phil Collins. Um, I, I know there are a lot of embarrassing details in this story, but that's probably the biggest one. Um, so I thought, OK, well, what I'll do is I'll jump at the end of this song. So I played the song, and it came to an end. And then I thought, oh, hang on, no, no, I really like the next one. So sat there and, and listened to, to the next one going, um, and then that one finished, and then, oh no, the next one's my favourite, Inside Out. I can't jump before Inside Out. Um, and anyway, and then thus passed the entire album, and then by the time it finished, I realised I probably didn't want to die right now anyway. So I climbed back in, walked to the shoe shop, and was docked an hour's pay for being 15 minutes late. Um, anyway, so I didn't tell anyone about that attempt either. Um, and then the months passed by, and... Um, uh, during this time, Alison and I became, we were, I think we were pretty much best friends by now. We spent almost all our spare time together, except for when she was shagging her various, various boyfriends. Um, and, um, but once again, she became single at just the right time, because uh, mum and dad said I could have a summer barbecue. They never let me have a party. But they said, we'll go to the pub. You can have the house. You can have booze, because we were 17 by now. Um, so they did this, and I was allowed 25 friends. And for some reason, I wasn't that popular at school, but for some reason, all the cool kids wanted to come to this party. Well, 
all the cool kids and Andy Rogers, the gurning, preening, posing sleazebag with a kink in his nose and badly permed hair. And, um, but it went swimmingly for the first couple of hours. Like, uh, nothing got broken, uh, everyone was enjoying themselves. And after about half an hour, um, Alison and I found ourselves alone in the dining room. And um, she took my hand and we had our first proper French kiss. I was like, yes. But my, first, my first, well, I think my, technically my second French kiss, but even so, my first kiss was French kiss with someone I fancied. And um, <laughs> we, uh, so yes, but we parted because I was the host and I had to make sure everyone was okay. And then after a couple of hours, I noticed I hadn't seen her for a while. So I looked um, in, all the, in the kitchen and the, and the lounge and the bedroom and I couldn't find her. And eventually um, there was only one room where she could be. So I threw open the door of the spare bedroom and sure enough, there she was in the arms of Andy Rogers. So I, I actually stayed very cool that night. I um, didn't overreact. I just went back out to the party, quite calmly closed the door and uh, made sure everyone else was okay. I overreacted the next night because um, the next night I was out with my friend Nick. Now Nick was quite a bit older than me. He was um, about 25 and uh, he, was, well, he was a lad, possibly even a yob. I don't know. Um, but he, he had a good heart. He was a nice bloke, but he, he liked to live dangerously. And um, we went out and we drank. And I think I drank, safe to say, more than I'd ever drunk before in my life. And at two in the morning, we find ourselves at this party um, in a village in the middle of nowhere. And I said to Nick, said to Nick look, we should probably get a taxi back. He said, no, don't be silly. I'll give you a lift. So we get in his 25-year-old Triumph Herald, pull away. And we're about halfway home when he just pulls the car over to one side. I said, well, what are you doing? He says, I think you need a driving lesson. Okay, well, you know, at the time, I think my logic was something like, well, okay, I'm really drunk, but he's even drunker. And secondly, I have got my driving test in a few weeks. And um, thirdly, um, it's 3 a.m. in the middle of nowhere. We hadn't seen another car the whole time. So, like, we're not really any harm to anyone, so... What harm can it do? So we swap seats, and it takes me a while to find first gear because it's a Triumph Herald, and um, I don't know if anyone's driven one, but they're nightmarish. Um, And I eventually find first gear and start bunny-hopping into motion. And at this exact moment, a police car comes the other way. (laughs) So um, Nick panics, I panic. We can see the copper slowing down to turn around. Um, So Nick just shouts like, turn right down here, because he knows there's like a, a maze of country lanes and we can hopefully lose him down there. Um, I still haven't managed to find second gear, even though we're now doing 40 miles an hour. <laughs> so Nick shouts, turn left, turn right. And, and I'm doing pretty well for my third driving lesson, I think. Um, but then, uh, you know, eventually, you know, you have a scared and drunk 17-year-old uh, at the wheel of an unfamiliar car, something's going to go wrong. And uh, at the next junction, Nick decided, to, he said, turn left. Um, and then he changed his mind. He said, no, right. So obviously, I tried to do both, um, which meant that we drove at 40 miles an hour straight through a dry stone wall. Now, um, I was wearing a seatbelt, but he wasn't. So um, he hit the windscreen and came back in. And he wasn't, you know, he was immediately, he was fully compostmented. So he immediately just sat there and said, you run away, I'll say it was me. Because he was the older guy, and because I was terrified, I just did what he said, and I ran. And it was about four miles home, so I arrived home. And then as I got in the door, I looked down, and I was covered in blood. Um, It was Nick's blood, but I don't think I really realised that at this point. And that's the last thing I remember, um, until about three hours later. 
Uh, and then I woke up and I was in hospital and my parents are looking down over me and my wrists are all bandaged up. And um, as far as we can work out, uh, what happened is that I, th- we think we, I saw the blood, went into shock, freaked out, ran into the kitchen, rifled through the drawers, took out all the sharpest knives and then ran off into the woods and started trying to saw through my wrists. Um, fortunately, because um, I'm an idiot, I was sawing them the wrong way. So um, I didn't actually lose that much blood. But um, anyway, so I was okay. Nick had lost his two front teeth, but otherwise he was okay. Uh, the car was a write-off. The wall was a write-off. Um, the police were kind of nice in that they presented me with a list of road offensive as, as long as my arm, but they didn't breathalyze me. So, um, And yes, well, uh, so the, the police were quite good about it. And mum and dad were actually really good about the accident. They helped, helped me, you know, make everything better and, and they lent me the money I had to earn it back obviously to pay them back to repair the wall and the car and the, pay the fines um, but they weren't quite so hot on the suicide attempt <laughs> um, being middle class I don't really think you know I don't think there's any articles in the Daily Mail on what to say to your son uh, if he's just trying to top himself so uh, there was no big chat uh, there was no offer of therapy or anything no what mum and dad thought the best thing to do uh, would be uh, to address my suicidal tendencies, would be to send me to my auntie's house in Surrey for a week. <laughs> so, um, but weirdly, it kind of worked. Because I think when I was at my auntie's house, it reminded me of my childhood. And it kind of brought back all those memories of having friends and, and good grades and conversations with my family and all these things I hadn't had for years. And um, when I realised what I missed most... Was, was having an interest, was, having, was being passionate about something other than passion. So when I got back home, I kind of launched myself back into life. I, um, I signed up with a local young people's charity organisation. I uh, became a singer in a band. Um, I joined the local Amdram troupe and started doing theatre every weekend. And after about two weeks, uh, sorry, not two weeks, that would be a remarkable transformation. Um, <laughs> after about two months, um, I was so busy and so connected with people, and so kind of involved in life again, that I actually started to care a little bit less about Alison. Um, and it was obviously at that point that she decided that she liked me and, and went out with me. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, we went out for a year, um, and it was great, and then I dumped her. <laughs> um, I, I suppose, uh, if there's any lessons to be learned from this tonight, um, listen to more Phil Collins. I don't know. Thank you. Next up, we have Susan Steed, who you can find at Susan Steed on Twitter. And she joined us for our Edinburgh reunion show, where we brought back some of our favourite discoveries and biggest supporters that we'd met in Edinburgh 2014. And we brought them back for a London reunion show. And here she is at that show. So put your hands together, everybody, for Susan Steed! everyone and thanks for that slightly weird introduction uh, Dave. Just ignore me that's fine. Right 
Um, so, uh, it's really great to be here. I live in Brixton. I haven't come far, and I'm quite new to stand-up, so I've got some friends in the audience who still think it's kind of fun to see me. It's all novelty for them. Um, might not be novelty for anyone else, so sorry about that. Um, and I probably shouldn't... I shouldn't say to people I'm not a professional, because it looks really unprofessional, but then I kind of am unprofessional, so I might as well just admit that I'm unprofessional. I don't know. <laughs> might not be the best... Uh, when I am more professional, I won't say I'm unprofessional, then it'll be a better start. I shouldn't really open like this. But um, I have now. So, anyway, I will start... Um, but I think that's kind of what I want to talk about, is I want to talk about the tragedy of not, us not being able to say what we really think or feel. Um, and I want to talk about it really in relation to death, but I'll start a bit lighter, because I've got some friends in the audience who want to hear me tell a joke, um, so I'll start a bit lighter. Um, and um, so, I mean, even I find it hard to talk about how, what I feel. Even, like, on online dating, I tried to pretend I was some person. So when I did online dating for my, like, profile, my tagline... I tried to make out as some really fun, cool person that people would want to date. So I put, as my tagline, um, to make myself look really fun and cool, I put, I look uh, vegetarian, but I eat meat. Um, which is, it's a weird, it's weird, I mean, it's a bit dirty. I didn't mean it like that, I just meant, like, I didn't mean I eat meat, I didn't mean it like that. All I meant was, um, you know, I'm fun. And I, but I think rather than, oh, she looks fun, I think people just thought, she looks vegetarian, you know, or... She looks like a vegetarian version of Amanda Knox. I don't know. Like, that was like, I had to do one joke. Sorry, that was the only joke. There'll be no more jokes now. Um, but it, it was a weird thing to put because I am vegetarian. So it was all a bit odd. And, um, uh, <laughs> and, um, and I am going to talk about death. I'm going to move on to that. But just one last thing on dating, online dating, is um, I don't know if you guys are doing online dating, like Tinder and stuff. Um, my advice is I didn't do that. I did the Guardian dating website, Guardian Soulmates. I don't know if anyone knows it. But for me, it really wasn't the right um, website because, firstly, I don't really read The Guardian that much. And secondly, I don't know if I've got a soul. Does anyone else worry about it? It's a worry, right? I mean, my ex-boyfriend said to me that I didn't have a soul. It's harsh. Yeah, boo him, you know, like... <laughs> I mean, people that are worried now, I'm not going out for any more. He doesn't have a job, so that's the main uh, reason I might have a soul, but that's, that's fine. Um, but I, I feel like um, my friends in the audience know who I'm talking about, and I don't want to like, just talk to my friends, but people that, you know, I feel like we're all friends here, you know. Like, friends, do I look like, you know, does my soul look small in this outfit? Can you? It's all right, isn't it? Like, you know, I don't wear black anymore. Do you know what they say about black? It's um, slimming on the soul, so I uh, don't wear black. <laughs> anyway, this, <laughs> this is weird. I'm not, I'm, I'm talking about tragedy. So I guess the tragedy I really want to talk about is how... Hard it is to talk about how you feel when you have really bad things happen to you. So the thing I'm really kind of thinking about, for me, um, a few people that I really care about died, and I found it really hard to talk to people, and I found that people didn't really want to come up and talk to me. Um, and it was almost like I was sort of wearing a Mexican sombrero. Because, you know, people come up to you, but then they don't want to get too close to you, they don't want to say the wrong thing, and they might get kind of poked in the eye of one of your tassels. Um, I don't know if I'm explaining this properly, but it's not like a happy sombrero. It's like a big Mexican sombrero of sadness. Do you know what I mean? Um, so, um, and it's not because people are mean, but they come up to you. They know that you're upset and they don't know what to say. So they kind of, you know, you think they're going to talk to you and they just give you a weird look. They might like, you know, they kind of tilt their head. They're going to come under the sombrero. But, it, but, it's, but it's weird. So first of all, you just stay at home when someone dies. You don't go out. The sombrero is so big, you can't fit out the front door. Um, and you stay at home and you organise a, a death party, a funeral. Um, and that's a good thing to do because it keeps you busy. Um, so, but I don't know if it's a good way to deal with, with death immediately organising a funeral because um, I just don't think we do it well enough in the UK. So um, my, um, 
Uh, my uh, auntie lives in Ghana in Africa, and there they have like three-day-long funerals where you really feel all the emotion. You talk to them about how you feel. Whereas here, like when my dad died, I had like a 20-minute service at the local crematorium. Like 20 minutes sounds like, you know, it's shit in comparison. It's like a really crap ready meal, isn't it? You know, you just sort of stick it in the oven for 20 minutes. That'll do. It's not, it's not, um, it's not, it's not, that's not, it's a bit, yeah, I shouldn't really talk about, um, I don't know. But I, I shouldn't, I don't know if this is a good analogy, the sort of ready meal funeral thing. But I'm going to continue with it for just a bit longer, so bear with me. Um. Because I sort of feel like when people that I care about have died, I felt a bit like what you feel when you have a ready meal. Like, you know you're going to feel sad and lonely. You, that's what it's like, it says on the packet. You know you're going to get those things. But I got a load of guilt. I didn't expect the guilt. Um, and that's the sort of thing that I want to kind of share. And this is my tragedy, is this kind of this guilt that you feel. Because um, people come up to you and talk to you about the loss that you might feel when someone dies. So, um, but when my dad died, I felt really guilty. And I got cards saying, you must, you know, you're, I'm sorry about your loss. But I wanted people to say to me is... Um, yeah, I'm sorry your dad died pretty early, but you should have been a bit nice to him when he was alive, shouldn't you, you bitch? Like, that's how I felt. But no one sells that card, you know? <laughs> I had a friend die, and um, I felt really guilty because I knew he was depressed, I knew things weren't going well for him, but I didn't feel like I did enough. And I, but, you know, I wanted people to send me a card saying, yeah, you should have fucking done more when he was alive, shouldn't you? Yeah, but again, that card, that greetings card, was a gap in the market for some kind of more realistic... Greetings cards, possibly. Um, but anyway, uh, this is getting... I mean, I, I suppose... Um, someone who saw me perform in Edinburgh said, I think you need to make the audience feel a bit more comfortable, like that you're OK, that you're on top of everything, because it looks unprofessional if you look like you're really sad. So I am on top of things today. So what you do when you feel guilty, uh, you just got to do some things. Here are my tips for what you do when you've got all this guilt. Um, the first thing is just to blame other people. That's a really good thing you can do. Um, I found it hard for the, my, the two, uh, my dad, but for my grandma, I just blame the TV programme Changing Rooms. It's quite a long story, because they, I think they murdered her, but I, don't, I, I can't wait to the story. I shouldn't really brought that up, because I haven't got to tell the story. <laughs> but that's the sort of blame. Um, <laughs> the other thing you can do is just keep busy. You know, you've got the funeral to organise, the party, but then when that's over, you've got to find a voice to keep busy. So I was lucky. Uh, when my dad died, I had um, bulimia. So that was really great, because, you know, I mean... Bulimia's got a bad name. I know people are sort of going, why are you talking about bulimia now? Um, it has got a bad name. I, I take that it has got a bad name. But the really great thing about bulimia is that if you're feeling guilty, if you're worried about having a soul or not, um, if you have bulimia, all you really need to do worry about is kind of what you're going to eat and uh, whether you can be sick. So it's, uh, it's really uh, relaxing in some ways. It really takes your mind off everything else. It's a really great um, thing to have is the, the bulimia, you know. It's kind of the catchphrase of bulimia is, don't be sad, be sick. So that's it, really. Um, <laughs> uh, but I'm, not, I'm obviously not condoning bulimia, and I don't have it anymore. And there are other eating disorders available, you know, other ways you can hate yourself, just hate your body, whatever. Or just, you know, work loads, overwork, like run a community project, start a local currency, do something, just keep yourself busy. <laughs> um, uh, or just watch animal videos. That's another really great thing to do on YouTube, like lots of nice animal videos. Um, so, I suppose, um, moving on and like keeping, you know, a bit few dark things, I'm going to lighten the mood now by talking about um, another time when I didn't know what to say to someone, which was when I found out on Facebook that my um, ex-boyfriend had a really serious motorcycle accident, and now he's now completely disabled from the, from the neck down, like no movement at all, which is really, really... Uh, which is really tragic, and I didn't know what to say to him. And I thought, you know, I'm this kind of death spurt now. I, I don't want to treat people like they're wearing sombrero of sadness. I can just be normal. I'll just talk to him normally. What, can I, what shall I say to him? Um, so I thought, well, what, what do I normally talk to people about? 
Um, and I looked at my emails to people that I normally send people. And the normal thing that I do when I send emails is send them kind of links to cute animal videos on YouTube. Um, and so I thought, I'll just do that to him. So I just sent him um, links to some really cute animal videos. I mean, not mainstream, not cats. Um, like, that would be just, yeah, I mean, I'm more niche. So I like guinea pigs. They're like my favourite. I think they're just so cute. Uh, but uh, anyway, so I sent him, sent him an email with some links to some really cute guinea pig videos. He, he didn't reply, so maybe he doesn't like um, guinea pigs, and that was kind of awkward. But I suppose that I bring this up because it, I felt like it was a, it was a theme, um, which is that bad things seem to happen to people I go out with. So this is, a re- this is where I'm... I'm uh, the last sort of thing I'll, I'll talk about is... Um, uh, I also found out on Facebook that someone that I thought I was really in love with um, died, and um, it was just... Uh, and it was a really difficult one where I felt the guilt I talked about earlier, I felt it so strongly with this person um, because I thought I was in love with him. Like, I knew him from travelling, went to university with him, and I kind of thought not only was he great, but that he was going to change the world. I'd pinned loads of hopes onto him because he spoke Spanish, he was, really, um, he was really spontaneous, he was prone to be a doctor, he was like captain of the rugby team, he was all these things. I thought he's like Che Guevara, you know, he's going to change the world. But it turns out he was just taking lots of drugs, and it's really easy to get those two things confused. <laughs> And, um, like, give you a flavour of this guy. On my 21st birthday, he turned up. I had a boat party, which you normally have to kind of arrive to on time and leave, uh, stay till the end because the boat's moving. But he got there late. He'd dressed up as a Long John Silver, but he'd pegged up his leg, so he was running even more late. Um, and not only was he dressed as Long John Silver, he decided to act in the character of that all night, even talk to all my friends who, who didn't know him. So they thought that was odd. Um, but I thought maybe this is the night we'll get together. He got me a really cool present, and um, I was like, this is going to happen tonight. This is the guy that I love. I'm going I'm to be with him. Um, I was telling all my school friends, they're like, he seems, he seems quite odd, but it was fine. But then he jumped off the boat onto the bridge, and because he was being so weird, the boat company wouldn't let him back on. And I was like, oh, he's gone. Um, he's jumped off my boat party and left early. Um, and then, like, ten years later, he actually jumped off some cliffs and, and died um, so there's, there's no joke here. It's just some. This is really just tragedy. Um, so uh, I really need a joke. Maybe I did need a joke or a guinea pig video to show you all to cheer you all up. <laughs> it's not, and I don't have a joke about this. It's not. It's not really funny. I don't feel like. But I guess the thing I would say, to, the reason I bring it up now is that I feel when it first happened, I, f- I didn't feel sad at all. I wasn't even wearing a sombrero. I just felt guilty. I felt I didn't deserve to feel sad because I, I saw him very soon before he died. I didn't do anything. So it, it, I just felt really guilty. Um, and that's the kind of thing about this. this the, um, the thing that's really hard, I think, is that uh, the thing that I, I would change and try not to do again is to build up an image of someone that isn't true. Because when he died, I had two people to grieve for. One is the person that he was, and the second was the kind of Che Guevara figure that was in my head. Um, and then the fact that I didn't reconcile those two people when he was still alive is, is I mean, it's, it's hard to deal with. Um, so, uh, but I'm trying to be a comedian, so I should probably uh, try and lighten the mood. Um, I suppose one other thing that I was, was thinking about was, this was two, you know, two, one, this guy died and my other um, ex-boyfriend is, is now disabled. And I was also thinking at uh, the time, what everyone would probably think is, am I a witch? Have I done something to these people? And um, my, current, my now ex-boyfriend, who's, who's still alive, he's, he's fine, but he said to me, no, it's not that you're a witch, it's just that you, um, you go out with fucked up people, you don't fuck them up, and stuff. It's, just, it's just selection, so it's all fine. So if you're looking at me now thinking, she's kind of vulnerable, maybe I'll try and fuck her off the show. Uh, yeah, it's fine, you might, you might, you, there might be a risk involved in doing that. <laughs> uh, but then I do, I have a show, but I do eat meat, so, you know, there's some benefits too. Uh, <laughs> such, I really, it's such a horrible way to end this, um, but I will, um, <laughs> will end it. Um, I mean, I don't really want to end on that thought. Well, you guess one thing. 
I guess one thing that I have thought about is all this has happened and um, is just live while you're alive and you know do the things that you really love doing and so when I was a kid one of the things that I really loved doing was really good at was like doing impressions of guinea pigs so I might just leave you on a guinea pig impression if that's okay if I got time okay so um, <laughs> uh, but I should say that like um, you know when you're good at something at school and then you, you don't practice it and everyone else practices and they all get much better at it then you're just left with what you're like when you're seven like when you're good at maths like maths has moved on I'm worried the guinea pig impression has moved on this won't be good enough and it's like I've built it up now so I probably shouldn't have built it up so much but it might not be very good the guinea pig impression but oh, shall, I, shall I do the guinea pig impression okay um before I do do it, I should also just say that, like, I'm not gonna, I don't look like a guinea pig, I look like a vegetarian or like a rabbit or something, so I'm just imagine I look like a guinea pig. Okay, so you can, can you, you've got a good imagination, you can do that, right? I don't want to overrun, am I running on over time? Okay, well, I probably, maybe I won't, um, um, because like, it's, a, it's quite emotional, the guinea pig, I haven't done this on seven, so I feel like I want to rush it, and also, like, um, yeah, I feel like, I feel like it might be quite fun if I leave. Because everyone wants to... Everyone kind of... Do you want a guinea pig impression? I feel like you do, which is a weird thing to want. But there might not be a guinea impression. It might, you know, might not exist. It might be something we've all built up in our heads. It doesn't really exist. Doesn't, you know, who knows? I don't really know. So I'm just going to leave you on that. Thanks, everyone. That's a... Changing the tone up a bit and giving us a nice welcome break at this point from the darker stuff. Here is Lauren Stone, who performed with us at Edinburgh in 2014. You can find her on Twitter at lstone345. Lauren is going to be telling tragic fairy tales with us at Tragic Winter on Saturday, February the 28th, at the Hackney Attic. She's part of our Tragic Winter show, which has got a really excellent lineup. She's not the only tragic comedy performer that we're going to have. We've got Jack Rook, Izzy Lawrence, and Amy McAllister, as well as some other performers from who do music and spoken word and storytelling and lecturing and all sorts of things. So come and join us at the Hackney Attic as we find the bleakness in the midwinter and celebrate it before it passes and we move into the spring. Lauren Stone! What what incredible things have to follow. Uh, (laughs) uh, No, it's good. I was contemplating doing a poem about Viagra, but now I can't, obviously. Um, uh, I has... I don't know. Hello, team. Um... Hey, oh, that's good. Um, have you ever been to so many funerals in a concentrated period of time that you start to plan your outfit for the next one? <laughs> um, I, I've done that. Uh, um, this isn't it. This isn't my funeral outfit. I just naturally wear a lot of black. Um, and I also am naturally sad looking, apparently. Um, I don't know if anyone... I've started introducing myself as just like, hello, nice to meet you. No, I, I'm okay. I naturally look like this. Um, although a lot of... I mean, I've been flying for, for a show, um, which is as much fun as you can imagine. And uh, um, actually, it's hideous. And... <laughs> But it's, it's made no much. It's made no no more fun and no less fun by the fact that people come up to me, um, other flyers, members of the public, complete strangers to me, come up to me and say, 
you look sad. <laughs> um, they don't say, oh, hey, do you want to come and see this funny comedy show? It's a sexy comedy show. No, they go, you look sad. Um, and I'm apparently naturally sad-looking. And, 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 and somebody came up to me, maybe because I was sitting sadly on a bollard eating an entire pack of donuts to myself but a man a man came up to me um when i was flyering um actually just hiding behind a bin eating donuts um and uh, and he was a sort of young beardy man and he's he was very softly spoken and very kind sounding and he said to me uh you look sad and i said that's a hell of a thing to come up to somebody you don't know and say and he was like well you do you look like you don't want to be here and when he said, you look like you don't want to be here, it wasn't like, you look like you don't want to be here at the Fringe. It was like, you look like you don't want to be here in the world. And, and I was a bit offended. Um, and, and I sort of said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I just naturally look like this. And then he was like, oh, I feel terrible. Because um, uh, if you just said that you were sad, then I could have tried to cheer you up. And I was like, are you going to try and cheer me up by trying to sell me a show, aren't you? Because he had these flyers kind of clutched to his chest. Uh, and, and, and he was obviously kind of withholding them because I was quite cross. Um, and I was like, no, 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 come on, just sell me the show. And he was like, it's not really a show. It's not really a show. Um, and, and he gave it to me and it just said, Christ the Redeemer on it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I laughed a lot. And then I was like, oh, thank you very much. Um, because I was thinking that like the show I'm in is actually about kind of... Um, like uh, a woman who is very religious, um, and it's kind of a it's 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 based on a George Saunders short story, and he's very critical of that kind of um, religion. Well, not critical, but he's kind of you know some aspects of religion are good and some aspects are bad, and it's very thoughtful. Um, but it just made me laugh a lot that this man was kind of handing me this propaganda. So I sort of said, "Oh, thank you very much," um, and he said, "Oh, that got a smile out of you," and they looked very unnerved. Um, because I don't think that usually happens to him. I don't think people usually smile and thank him for the for the religious propaganda. Um, and and he said, "You do you do know it's a religious tract, don't you?" And I was like, "Yeah, thank, thanks very much. I'll see you later." Um, and uh, yeah, so that's the kind of thing that's been happening to me a lot. A lot of people come up to me and say, "You look you look sad." Um, and uh, yeah, but I'm I I'm not actually. I'm, this is just it's quite a bad thing to admit at stand up tragedy, isn't it? I should come up here and say, "Oh, I'm terribly sad. Oh, sad about all things." But actually, my life is going all right. Um, <laughs> I ate an entire pack of donuts to myself recently. Um, uh, so you know. Um, and actually, the thing that I'm going to tell you about that's sad, that is, it's just a small sad thing. Um, and uh, my mum fell down the stairs recently. Um, she's okay, <laughs> just, just to clarify. She, she only, it sounds very dramatic. It's like she only fell down two stairs and she was lying there, rolling around. And, um, and I looked at her and I went, ooh, fucking hell. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't really do anything for a bit and then I helped her. Um, but then, uh, basically, um, the, 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 the gist of what I'm trying to get at is she was on crutches for a while, and, um, and it was just me and my mum in the house, and she was on crutches, and she couldn't really do anything, and she looked a bit green, and, um, and it was just me and my mum, and my dad was working, and, uh, and I had to kind of stay at home and look after her, um, and, 
we have a very... So my mum was just kind of sitting on the sofa looking green and couldn't move anywhere very fast. And we have a very elderly cat. He is 19 years old. And um, he's, he's completely deaf, as I, as I recently discovered, because my shouting at him just didn't work, or didn't work even more than it usually... You, just, just me opposite the cat going, I don't know what you want! And then, um, yeah. So he's, he's completely deaf. And he's also recently, to coincide with my mum being on crutches, gone completely blind. Um, so he's this very, if you can imagine, just a kind of big elderly ginger cat. He's very lovely. He's a very lovely cat. But he's, he's, he's very um, uh, limited in what he can do now. And um, it's mostly just going in circles, bumping into things. Um, but, I mean, basically what happened was that um, he started, in his blind, deaf confusion, um, having gone recently blind, just pissing on things in the house. Um, pissing on things that he shouldn't be pissing. I mean, he probably shouldn't be pissing in the house. But um, he, he's been doing that. And uh, But my mum couldn't move fast enough to stop him, so I spent a whole week while my mum was on crutches um, uh, with all the doors in the house open so that whatever I was doing at any point in the house, I, my mum would shout from downstairs and she would go, Lauren, the cat is pissing! And I'd have to sprint down the stairs, which I'm not very good at because of all the donuts. And I would, would sprint down the stairs and pick the cat up uh, and run outside with him and put him down. And of course... Um, he had absolutely no fucking idea what had happened. It was like the hands of God had lifted him out of the place that he knew that he was, the nice-smelling living room, and just put him down uh, in the garden where everything was weird. Um, and, yeah, so it's, it is very sad, and he just walks about bumping into things and pissing now. Um, and I'm sure he's not very long for the world, but um, uh, it was just kind of heartbreakingly funny um, to have to run from various ends of our house to go and get him um, and, and, and uh, bring him into the garden for that period of time. Um, and, and that's it. That's all I have to say. A, a thing about my cat. Um, God. Okay. Nothing about Viagra. Just about the cat. Um, thank God. Okay. Uh, thanks very much. And um, yeah. Continuing our Edinburgh 2013 theme here's a performance from charlie harrison who you can find on twitter at charlie lucy ha and at charlie lucy harrison charlie has worked with sunday tragedy for a long time she's hosted some of the nights when i couldn't be there and here she is giving a very personal performance at edinburgh last year Put your hands together for Charlie Harrison! Yeah. Um, I'm not going to use that, if that's right. I'm just going to check you. Oh, I'll do it this way. Thanks, Dave. Right, Transmittable. 
I've slept with so many comedians, I have. Um, yeah, they're all still really bad. <laughs> um, I'm actually not going to like try and make you laugh uh, now, I mean, because it's stand-up tragedy, and I do want to talk about tragedy, so that's all laughter done now. Don't laugh while well, you can, but you don't, don't like, expect to laugh now. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit, because I was thinking about tragedy, and what has characterised this fringe for a lot of people was the suicide of Robin Williams, and a lot of people have talked about it, and when you're like me, you have a news feed full of comedian friends who are all trying to write the first fucking joke about it, you know, angels, it was such a classic, can't believe he's gone, you know, distasteful stuff, also poetical stuff that people write, people responding, but the way that I feel about it is, and the way that I feel about suicide is that there is... Everyone, if they're making a weird joke or writing a story, is trying to put their meaning onto something which I think is tragically meaningless. Suicide makes life itself seem meaningless, seem all the things that we value meaningless. Um, two years ago, a good friend of mine, Nush, killed herself, and I still am struggling to find the meaning in it. I saw her dad last weekend at a festival, and it went a bit like this. Adrian, hi. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Charlie. Oh, how are you? Yeah, good. Um, this was Nisha's favourite festival. She really liked it here. I went, yeah. My friend, she was with me, then went, you're very brave, Adrian. And then there was this weird, awkward silence. And then I said... The Pixies are on the main stage at 2pm. <laughs> right. Don't judge me. I don't like the Pixies. I don't. I don't even like music festivals that much. But I've never been good at that whole side tilt. You're very brave. Like, even that for me, what does brave mean? Like... Is brave just a word that we say to people in really shit situations because we want to compliment them? Is he just living? He's just carrying on. Um, like, I haven't found meaning in it. I have... I do get worried. Like, I get worried that the people around me are going to kill themselves. That sounds stupid, but I do. I see this fragility in people like my brother, and I wonder, I worry that they're going to kill themselves. Um, and I just kind of, like, really sometimes, what the effect it had on me is, like, I just wish we could all just hold hands and form some sort of anti-suicide pact where we all just promise, you know? We just promise each other that we won't, that we'll, we'll continue, you know? We'll just stick it out. And then people are like, Charlie, you're just really ruining this engagement party. What the vibe we want it. And I mean, I guess the only meaning I found in the whole of everything, and the only meaning I kind of think of really, is is laughter. And I was simi- so I was similarly kind of awkward at the funeral of my my friend. And Adrian was there, and I had another kind of oh, awkward conversation. I couldn't think of anything to say because it is just tragic. It is just tragic. I can't find a positive thing in this situation. Um, but there was something quite brilliant I thought that happened, which was a friend of mine sat. Uh, at the, in the chapel here and the funeral was really really tragic and we're very English, me and my friend with platonic friendship and we've never, we don't really hug, you know, it's that sort of thing and, and we're very very strong and the, all the songs came through and we were just very 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 stoic and I watched it all and then they played Somewhere Over the Rainbow and it 
crushingly tragic to the point where suddenly we were just holding each other and crying. And then we left the chapel and there was that awkward bit again that you get at weddings and you get at funerals where no one really knows what to do. And we, you know, we'd, we'd cried all these tears. And then I just saw this woman, right, bum bag, Chinese lady, with a camcorder. She hadn't been in the chapel, okay, filming. <laughs> I turned to David and I said, who films a funeral? And he said, I don't know, Chinese people? <laughs> and in that bizarre and slightly racially inappropriate moment, our tears of of utter kind of mourning and, and, and tragedy and just upset just turned to these hot tears of laughter. It was like having a sort of sedative. We were just sort of like, crushing like that, just couldn't stop laughing. Like, just, just hilarious. Just like we were, you know. And then as we were doing that, we couldn't disguise it by, and it's crying, by the way, because like proper belly laughs, like the Mary Poppins scenes and that. Like that. And, and as we were doing that, slowly, camcorder oh. <laughs> comes around to us. So when when this woman, whoever she was, watches her funeral video, you know, when you do that Christmas, I know, get it out, um, she will watch this very sort of tragic service and there will be these two rather suspicious people having a whirl of a time. But I think that was just, I guess, sorry that this is quite sort of convoluted, but I think what I'm trying to say is that that moment when we are in hysterics is when it feels like there is complete and total meaning, unquestionably, and we've transcended just momentarily from the shittiness and the bleakness of life and its meaninglessness, its meaninglessness. So yeah, that's what I'm saying basically, laughter transcends the tragedy and that's pretty beautiful. That's been my story. And Talk. Thank you very much for listening. Yeah. Yeah. Charlie Harrison, everybody. Next up, we have Egyptian-born American comedian Tama Katan, who also joined us at the Edinburgh Festival in 2013. You can find him on Twitter at Tama Katan and at www.tamakatan.com. Uh, so put your hands together, everybody, for Tama Katan! Thanks, Dave. That was such a dramatic intro. Sorry for the American accent. I know I sound like people you hate. <laughs> when I was younger, I used to think that I looked the way that I look. Like, uh, I'm heavily tattooed. Uh, I used to work out really heavily, and I used to do a lot of drugs. And I used to think that I'd look that way because I love punk rock, and I grew up in a tough neighborhood. But uh, when I got older, I started being honest with myself. And I think I, I look this way because I grew up in a violent household. Um, like, my dad was a bad combination. He was an ex-boxer and an alcoholic who had PTSD from the war. But they didn't know what it was back then. They just said, hey, there goes Muhammad, the guy that chokes his kid in the supermarket. You know what I mean? That's a joke part. It's okay. It's all right. He's dead. I'm alive. I win. I told you they'd like that joke, Dad. I always do that wrong, you guys. I told you they'd like that joke, Dad. <laughs> so uh, I was going to talk about that. That's what I wanted to talk to you guys about. But the word tragedy uh, 
has become eclipsed with Gaza. Um, and there's something unusual about my background. Um, I have a Muslim father and a Jewish mother. And so I grew up in a weird way. And uh, a lot of people have been asking me, what's your perspective? What do you think about what's happening in Gaza? And uh, one of the things that's happened to me growing up is I've always been an outsider. And now I realize that sometimes the view from the outside is nice. The, the view of the outsider's viewpoint is kind of nicer. Like I lived in New York for a long time and I always thought Jersey was a shitty place to live until I looked outside of my friend's window and realized he had a view of New York. I was looking at Jersey. <laughs> so it's nice to be the outsider sometimes. So um, if you guys will allow me to, I, I'm a stand-up comic normally, so I've got to put some training wheels on for a little bit. Um, so when I thought of tragedy, I, I thought of Gaza and I'm going to use my book if you guys don't mind. Uh, just don't tell anybody I used a book, okay? Um, so when people ask me, this, let me, I want to explain one other thing first, is that I, I don't blame my dad anymore. Uh, I look at what happened to my dad as like a vampire bit my dad, and then he turned into a vampire, and then he bit me, and now I have to try to not be a vampire. So I have to be like one of the vampires on Twilight. <laughs> yeah, I can still have a girlfriend. <laughs> You know, I'm twinkly in the sunlight, you know what I mean? So I'm working on it. I'm working on it. But I, I've been single for a very long time, and I think that's, that's a big part of the reason. So when people ask me about Gaza, um, it's, it's strange for me when people say, what's your opinion? My opinion is that it's fucking horrible. And I don't have the luxury of taking a side. And I use that word luxury very specifically. I don't have that luxury. I can't pick one side and go, all those people are wrong. I can't pick this side and say, all those people are wrong. I, I, I have to listen to both sides. And here's my conclusion. They're both fucking assholes. <laughs> yeah, they're both total liars. They're both manipulators. They've both been lying to us for 3,000 years. And what we're trying to do is, hey, let's figure out which of these two drug addicts having a fight is right. <laughs> right? They're both wrong. They're, they're both using violence the way drug addicts use drugs. They use drugs to cover pain. They're both people, displaced people that are in pain, and they use violence to numb themselves the way I used to use cocaine. So there is no answer to the question of which drug addict is right. Both drug addicts are liars, and they're both addicted to violence. So we shouldn't pick a side. We should pick the side of peace. So fuck them both. Um, uh, okay. Okay, good. Uh, now, here's the other fucking thing. Here's the other fucking thing that's nice about never having a sense of identity. Like, I, my background when I was growing up, I, when I went to university, I studied social psychology. And uh, this one sentence haunts me. Just the, the number one human drive is the drive to belong. And I've never been, I'm worse than a black sheep. I'm a gray sheep. Do you know what I mean? I couldn't even fit in with the black sheep. You know what I mean? <laughs> And so for me, like whenever I hear these notions of identity, uh, all I can think of is like the only thing that science and religion agree upon is that we all come from the same two shitty parents. Adam and Eve sucked. I would love to see those two on Jeremy Kyle. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? All this for an apple? Are you kidding me? You know what I mean? So that, that everything else is fiction. No matter what you believe in, whether it's science or religion or whatever religion you believe in, the only thing we all know is we all came from two people. So we're exactly the same people. But everybody wants us to believe that we're different, especially governments and brands. Because if we all think we're the same, if we all think it's cool to be like everybody else, we don't spend money. I'm not going to spend money to buy cologne to smell different. I'm not going to spend money to buy a car to look cooler. I'm not going to pay taxes to a government to protect me in a different way because I'm just like everybody else. But being just like everybody else is a not-for-profit business, right? So all this shit is fiction. 
And I said this in America one time at a comedy club in Texas. This guy yelled out, God bless America. And I said, you know what God would say if you said that? He'd say, what's America? And I'm like, good job. You just confused Christ. And then the bouncer comes up to me and said, let me walk you to the car. <laughs> You're in Texas. <laughs> so, uh, so that's the thing. I keep going back to this, this notion that we're all the same and everything else is fiction. We're all the same. And I see it. It's, I, I think it goes back farther than racism. It's not racism. It goes back to tribalism, right? And you see it in sports. And guys won't like this, but I think sports is a major problem. Because people in England are like, look at those crazy Middle Eastern people trying to kill each other. Really? Because I saw a guy who loves Manchester United beat the shit out of a guy who loves Liverpool. And they look exactly the same. Right? But he wants to feel special. If he's going to be a winner, somebody's got to be a loser. Right? And that, that's, we've got this violence and this anger and the easy answer is to beat somebody else up. And so I don't, I don't think that it, this is just about the Middle East. I think the Middle East is, is to humanity what the tar pits are to dinosaurs. This is where we start and end. Do you know what I mean? And it's not like these are two people having a fight at a bar that we could turn our heads away from. These are two people having a gunfight on an airplane that we're on. And we've got a right to say, hey, assholes, cut it out. Do you know what I mean? Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> and uh, here's the other thing that's kind of weird to me is a lot of people keep saying, this is America's fault. This is America's fault. And, and I agree. But I don't think it's because of the funding of the weapons and, and all the other shit. I think it's because of capitalism and because of brands and because of all the other. It's violent capitalism. Let's make up a new phrase, right? That's what it is. Because have you ever noticed that every program that's on TV that's sponsored by advertisers is all about people losing? And every commercial is all about people winning? Every Jeremy Kyle, like Maury Povich, Jerry, Jerry, what's his fucking name? Jerry Springer, right? All these different programs are all different types of rain, and every commercial is a different type of umbrella, right? If you want to see a story about somebody winning, you can do that. You got to go to a movie theater. You got to pay for that, right? But everything on TV is about losing. Everything on TV is about making us feel like we're not good enough unless we buy, the, you know, this product or that product. And that's why we're not. That's why we all think we're so different. We're not. We're not fucking different. We're the same. Uh, okay, good. So far, so good. Right? Uh, okay, and here's the other strange thing, right? Everybody, I, I saw this on a Facebook status update the other day. Somebody says, it seems like the world is just exploding all around us. It's not just Israel and, God, and, and, and Palestine. It's Libya and Syria and all the other, other places around the Middle East. But here's the way I think of it. I think because of this rampant consumerism that we're on, we glamorize young people, right? And young people suck at life, let's be honest, right? It's not their fault. They're beginners, Beginners suck at things. That's the definition of beginner. But, be, but young people are the best consumers because they last forever. If you go up to an old guy and say, if you buy this mayonnaise, it makes you cool, he'll say, fuck you. Right? But young people are like, yes, miracle whip. <laughs> right? But if we were all still in tribes right now, the life stage that young people would be in is that guys would be going out and killing things and women would be going out and fucking things. Right? And if you look at the most popular programs on TV... Right now, it's mixed martial arts, UFC, the worst of masculinity. And the real housewives of blank, the worst of femininity, violent liars. Who are we electing? Violent liars, right? All thinking is associative. So if there's a bunch of ideas coming in our heads and everything we see on TV, all the people that we, we glamorize are all violent liars. It's not that big of a surprise that the people we're electing are violent liars. It's not that big of a surprise that there are wars all over the fucking place. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it all comes from the shit that's on our, on our TV sets. 
Um, okay, and then here's the other thing that drives me bananas. Is, uh, isn't it weird that we, uh, it seems like we have more access to intelligence, but we're stupider than ever? Isn't that, doesn't that feel right? That we are more and more stupid than we've ever been, but we have so much access to intelligence. And here's what I think. I think it's because the most underrepresented group where we find our intelligence is old people. Old people are not online, but that's where we're going to get all of our intelligence now. So we have a lot of intelligence, but no wisdom. Google replaced grandpa. And that sucks, because Google doesn't care about us, but grandpa did. Grandpa had wisdom. Google doesn't have wisdom. And it sucks because there are old people all around us. But in Western society, because old people are such bad consumers, they're just ghosts. They're invisible, and they're waiting to die. So we're so shitty. We're like as stupid as a guy that's starving to death inside a locked supermarket. Like, there's sustenance all around us. There's old people all around us that we can, we can ask for help. But we, but we don't for some reason. We don't because they're not cool. They're not hip. Young people are the people to listen to. And that doesn't make any sense to me. Do you know what I mean? So when I go back to the question of like, what, what side am I on? I'm on the side of peace. I'm on the side of no more war. I'm on the side of making violence as unfashionable as corduroy bell bottoms. You know what I mean? Why, do we, why is violence so hip? Like, why can't we be as outraged about violence as we are about gluten? <laughs> right? I wish violence made us chubby, because then we'd, none of us would do it. Violence is fattening. We'd all be like, fuck that. And we'd avoid fat people. Like, they'd be really violent people. But fat people aren't. That's just a weird analogy. But so I'm on, I'm on the side of peace. And I'm on the side of, of stopping violence being such a cool thing. You know what I mean? And I'm on the side of justice not being waived for, for, for all the dead children. They're dead. Fuck it. I know that sounds cold. Fuck it. They're dead. You know, what about the living children? Let's wave the flag for the kids that are still alive. And, and fuck the people that are dead. Because if all we keep doing is looking for justice for the dead, we're just going to spin. We're just going to spin. And it's been 3,000 years that these fucking assholes have been lying to us. And the reality is they're both racist and they're both criminals. And we have a right to say something because they are us. They're not different than us. They're not Middle Eastern. They're not Israeli. They're not Palestinian. They're our brothers and sisters that came from the same two shitty parents. And that's it. Thanks, guys. Tamakatan, everybody. And we're going to finish up today's episode with a set from the really delightful and talented comedian, Sarah Pascoe, who joined us last year at the Dogstar in Brixton to talk about tragic love. You can find her at Sarah Pascoe, spelled S-A-R-A, on, uh, on Twitter, and uh, you can find her in lots of places online doing comedy. Put your hands together for Sarah Pascoe! Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello. Um, so, I... Uh, well, basically, I, I'll start with my ex-boyfriend, then I'll tell you about my new boyfriend. Um, my ex-boyfriend, my old boyfriend, um, on uh, our first Valentine's Day together, actually, he, um, he turned up at my house. I was cooking dinner with a bottle of champagne, which was nice. He bought this bottle of champagne, but um, he told me that it cost £30. 
And he was really annoyed that he couldn't get a cheaper one because they were all sold out because it was Valentine's Day. And because he'd made such a fuss about it, I just said, I'm not going to drink it. And he took me literally and um, then drank it on his own in another room <laughs> watching rugby, um, which <laughs> actually would have been fine apart from the fact that he hates rugby. And he kept shouting out how bored he was. And um, so I finished his dinner and I took it into him and he just ate it in front of the rugby next to an empty bottle of champagne. And I thought... I'm not in love with you. And um, nine years later, we broke up. Uh, <laughs> and so now I'm free. But the problem is that now, so I've got a new boyfriend now. We've just moved in together in Lewisham. Um, I don't know if you've ever been there. Basically, if you kind of go east from here until you start getting scared, and um, then you've arrived. And um, the problem is because I've spent a decade, basically, with someone else, I... I've gone into this relationship far too, uh, I guess, vulnerably. I'm like a teenager again. I love him too much. And that has resulted in a lot of jealousy, which I've never experienced before. It's a very irrational thing. I really fetishize um, him. And I, like his mouth, for instance, I can't watch him eat. Have you ever wished you were a baguette? <laughs> and, um, and, 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 yeah, it's irrational. So jealousy happens in your body, not in your brain. So intellectually, I know that all of his previous relationships, all of his exes, they aren't infidelities, but physically, when I hear about them, I react like they are, and I want to kill them. And so he, the other day in the car, this is just a small story, he was telling me about how at university he once, he really fancied this girl, and one night he'd stayed up all night kissing her, and then gone straight to his lecture in the morning, and he didn't even realise he had glitter all over his face. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And I have, to act, I have to act like that doesn't kill me, and I can have this kind of conversation with him. So I'm like, yeah, brilliant story. Yeah, oh, same thing happened to me once. Oh, I, I, I was up all night banging all these dudes, and I didn't go to sleep. I went straight to my lecture, and I didn't even realise I had all willies in my hair. Um, it's so embarrassing. Um, I, think, um, <laughs> I think a lot about Kim Jong-il, um, because I think, I, I know it's not very cool to say, but I have sympathy, because I think he, he, he had the personality of a woman in a new relationship. He lied about his age, he claimed he didn't go to the toilet, and um, I really understand, um, I really understand thought crime. The idea of thought crime, that actually if you really love someone and they have the power to hurt you, like whether it's a person or your subjects, like how can you actually trust what's going on in their head? Um, so for instance, I, um, well, sometimes my partner, my John, he'll be, um, he'll be on Facebook, and I think this is, Facebook's very suspicious now, because um, he'll just shout out something like, oh, you didn't tell me that Tanya went to Thailand. And, but she did, and that's in 2009. So that I know how, back, how far back from her pictures he's gone. Um, and it's not fair, because it used to be that if a boy liked a lady and wanted to see a picture of her in a swimming costume, he would have to like, move into her area, open a branch of snappy snaps, <laughs> and, and, and his fingers crossed she'd come in with a film come September. And, and now it's too easy. You can go through 200 women in a night just looking at their pictures. It's insincere. Um, like Pervin's too easy and I get, I, get, I get paranoid about pornography now I, 
I know that pornography isn't infidelity, it's thought crime. But, um, so basically, when, I, when I'm getting ready, I'm, I'm always late for gigs, and he is a comic as well, and it really irritates him because he knows what time I'm supposed to be there. So he's always like, trying to rush me out of the door because he doesn't understand that some trousers are liars, and you have to try on all of your trousers um, to, to see which one. I don't know if it's a government conspiracy. I don't know if it's NASA. Um, but, so he's trying to rush me out the door, and all I'm thinking is he wants to watch pornography. <laughs> before he leaves. And I don't know why he needs to watch pornography when I draw him such great vaginas. Um, now, um, stand-up tragedy. Maybe you can ask... Uh, I wonder about this. Hitler had a girlfriend. And they tell you that in GCSE history, but they just gloss over it like, oh, yeah, and then Hitler had a girlfriend. Which means that not only did somebody fancy Hitler, but how did she clear that with her mates? Like, how did that conversation go? Like, oh, Ava, how's it going with Adolf? Um, <laughs> well, he does believe that some races are subhuman and should be exterminated, but he's so much fun in the mornings <laughs> and a wonderful painter. And, um, and I'm trying to think, I'm trying to work out whether Ava and Adolf is a happy ending, because technically they got married and spent the rest of their lives together because he poisoned her and then killed himself. And then that got me thinking about Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, um, which is obviously an unhappy ending, but we always sold them as like a really good love story. It's 60, no, 63, 51 years this week since she committed suicide. And we always like sold that as like, oh, it's one of the great love stories. And it's a terrible love story. The first time she saw him, she bit his cheek at a party. It was never going to go that well, but yet we're always told that we should be really passionate. And I was looking into Napoleon and Josephine, so that's another one we're told he wrote the most incredible love letters to her, like the way he described love. They're all on the internet, so beautiful, and you're told that they're one of the... They're always talked of together, but what no one ever mentions is he left her because she was barren and married somebody else. Now, that's an awful story. I worry about being barren all the time. Because um, <laughs> I'm 32 and I've not had a baby. Um, I once had a tapeworm... But it's not the same. Um, Marie Bonaparte. Now, Marie Bonaparte, uh, this is, I, I think, interesting. Now, she was Princess of France. She was Napoleon's great-grandniece. And she was obsessed with her clitoris because she thought it was too far away. <laughs> now, uh, oh, <laughs> what are you doing up there? She, uh, she thought it was too far away from the other stuff. And that's why she couldn't come during sex. And so she did, a, under a pseudonym, she did research on 250 women. And she found that actually um, women who can have orgasms from penetrative sex, that's because their clitoris is nearer to their vagina. Fascinating stuff. She had her vagina removed and placed down, which didn't, yeah, exactly. But it didn't, it didn't work. Um, so, and she had an affair with the Prime Minister of France. But the reason I'm telling you this, what I found interesting about it is they've never... So the, it tends to be... You know, in terms of like me measurements, relations in the bodies... Uh, this is not a very good sentence. How parts of the body tend to be tall people and have big hands, stuff like that. Um, with women who've got small breasts, they tend to have a clitoris much closer to the other stuff, which answered a question because they'd always been... They'd always been very puzzled as to why women with small breasts had survived in evolution. Because since we've been walking on two feet, um, women uh, started growing breasts to look like buttocks to be more attractive to men. And the most attractive women are the ones with the bigger breasts. They never understood how have the small-breasted ones survived. And it's because we enjoy sex more. And we were all just running away having it in the bushes. Ha, 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 we survived. Um, um, I am... Um, I am, um, as I say, I'm 32, and I think, hey, um, 
32 is where they tell you the sexual peak is. And I used to not believe in it. I thought the sexual peak was a lie, like something they said to younger women to make you not be afraid of getting older. Like, oh, yes, you will have a moustache and a slow metabolism, but you'll also be the most sexual you've ever been. And um, now I am 32, and I really believe in it. I, I feel different in my body. I feel more confident, and I enjoy sex more. But nature has played a horrible trick, because men have their sexual peak when they're about 18. My boyfriend's my age. He's having a sexual slump. And, and, and this isn't fair, because an 18-year-old doesn't want to have sex with me any more than I want people to know that I've done that. Um, <laughs> and and I'll tell, tell you why it's not fair. When I was a teenager, I didn't enjoy sex very much. I don't think I even really understood sex, yet I had it all of the time, out of politeness, or to stay friends with someone, or say thanks for the lift. Like, it was so... It was so much easier to have sex with someone than have a conversation with them about not wanting to have sex with them or get the bus. And so, and men, in, as in my experience, men in their 30s, they find it very easy to say no to sex because of all of their confidence and self-assurance. And I just think as a, as a society, we should erode that. And, and I've tried talking about it, both on stage and to his mum. And... Uh, <laughs> Nothing's helping. He did do a really sweet thing. I know this is stand-up tragedy, but this was nice that he did. Um, he, he, a couple of weeks ago, he, I wasn't really talking to him, and he'd waited for me after a gig. He, um, he spent all day changing the rules to Trivial Pursuit. He'd pr printed out a new booklet, and it was called now Strip Trivial Pursuit. And he said, oh, come on, it, we'll have a drink, we'll have a sexy time, it'll get us back on track. And I don't know if any of you have ever played Strip Trivial Pursuit. Oh, but what that is, is that's you on a chair with no clothes on, feeling fat, watching someone beat you at Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> it's not a sexy time. Uh, hey, I hope that you have a, a wonderful rest of the evening. It's um, such a pleasure to come and talk to you. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you to all of our comedians today for coming onto our stage and sharing their darker sides and being prepared to look at the abyss in the eye with a smile on their face and love in their hearts. A lot of today's episode has focused on death. If you are into death, come along to Tragic Winter because we've got three acts of tragedy starting with tragic fairy tales where Lauren Stone, who you've heard today, will be doing a tragic fairy tale, moving into a guest curated act that's being organised by the writer and editor Alice Bell and is looking at the more wintry sides of tragic climate. And then we're going into our final act, which is tragic death, where Jack Brook. Izzy Lawrence and Amy McAllister will be doing sets that look at death as well as looking at life. But don't worry, we're not going to end completely on death. We're going to have a cathartic, tragic sing-along at the end of the night. Going to get everybody singing Let It Go from the film Frozen, I think. What's more cathartic and tragic than that? The doors open at 730 the performances end around 10.30, but if you want to stay and dance into the night, you can show off your tragic dance moves listening to tragic dance tunes with us into the early hours of the morning. So all of that's happening at the Hackney Attic on Saturday the 28th of February. Tickets in advance are £5, so go over to the Hackney Attic, which is part of the Hackney Picture House, and buy your tickets there if you want to get in 
for that cheap. Otherwise, it's £7 on the door, and I hope to see you there. But for now, the tragedy is over. This podcast has been produced by me, and put together by me, with sound production from Stephen Harvey, with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and the reaction.